We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 together today, so if you would please uh, grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll be looking at uh, the entire chapter today. Yeah. It's a lot of text. Don't worry, we'll get through it. All right, that's, that's going to be verses 1 through 13. And so... Um, Let's just begin our time by reading that text. Okay, and it says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Okay. If you've been with us, and and most of you have, uh, here's kind of our outline of of the text that we've been following together. And what I did here is I went ahead and prepared where we're going to be in the weeks upcoming. Okay? Uh, So it shouldn't be a surprise to you that when you come on Sunday morning that we're going to open up 1 Corinthians and we're going to be right where we left off. Okay, but here's what we have up and coming. Now, we looked at our first major uh, idea, which was concerning reports about the church, and now we're looking at concerning the matters that the Corinthians wrote to Paul about. And we talked about marriage, and there were some subpoints to that, and we walked through that together. But now we're in kind of a new topic, and there are now some subpoints to it as we break that concept down in the text. Um, okay, so first we're looking at knowledge and love. Uh, which is verses 1 through 13, chapter 8. That's the whole chapter. And then we're going to continue. But all of this following falls under this primary idea of food offered or sacrificed to idols. Okay? Uh, Now, as we begin our time uh, looking at this text, what I thought we would do, what I think is helpful, is that we're going to transport ourselves back in history. And the reason that we want to do that is because we want to find ourselves... uh, in context 
uh, not only in, in terms of the literature, that the context of what has been said in the letter, but we also want to find ourselves in context situationally, uh, historically. Okay? What was the issue happening for them that brought this situation on them? How relevant was it to them? And I think it's very beneficial that if we go back in time, if it's, it's just imagine with me, okay? You pick yourself up and you go back in time and you are now planted there, okay? In the year 50, 60 or so AD in ancient Corinth and you're planted there and then you look around, what do you see? What do you hear? And that kind of understanding impacts how you read Paul's words, which were written to them at that place and in that time. Um, now, food offered to idols had real relevance to them. And I think that if we can just take one, pluck one example out, it will kind of serve to help us understand maybe a fuller context. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick one example out, and we're going to look at it just briefly. And I think it will help us set our context for understanding why Paul needed to talk about this issue with them. And then we're going to see, well, this wasn't just an issue for them. It's not a principle that just informs them, but actually there's a principle here that informs us today, and it's very relevant for us today. Okay? Okay, so let's look at ancient Corinth. Here's a picture. And uh, I put some labels on here. This is the ruins of ancient Corinth. If you were to go there and visit, um, I would like to go there and visit. Uh, this is, uh, let's see, what you see standing here, these columns, that's the Temple of Apollo, okay, which would have been the biggest temple there in ancient Corinth. And then you have this mountain in the background, uh, and that's called the Acrocorinth. We've talked about it before. And on the top of that is where the Temple to Aphrodite is standing. Okay? Um, so we have a kind of a situation here where we can somewhat understand. We can look at the, we can go there and be there geographically now, right? But what about historically? What was the situation there historically? Uh, it's kind of another situation. Okay, so I have another map for you, of course. And uh, this is our map we've been using, but I've kind of zoomed in because I want to show you a couple of other places. So there's Corinth with our little yellow star. And I added Olympia there this time because I think pretty much all of us have heard of Olympia. That's where the Olympic Games were started. Okay, so that, that's Olympia. Actually, not where Mount Olympus is, uh, but that's where Olympia is, all right? Very near Corinth. But there's uh, another city just to the south called Epidurus, and it has some significance for us uh, today. I want to talk about a particular... Uh, guy. Go ahead and show him. Do I have him next? Yeah, there he is. Uh, so there were several gods that were worshipped, okay? There were several temples and several gods that were worshipped. And if we can kind of look at, like I said, an example of what this worship looked like, it's, it's really helpful to, to have an understanding of why food offered to idols was a real, real situation for them, okay? But here we have one. Uh, Asclepius uh, was a god who was worshipped there and was the son of Apollo. And actually, he was born in Epidurus. So, so the myth goes, okay? I'm going to talk as if the myth is real, okay? It's not. Uh, he was born in Epidurus, which is just south of Corinth. And his, his dad was the god Apollo, okay? And his mother was, was human, okay? And uh, uh, a lot of things happened with him, and I'm going to spare you a lot of details about his particular life here, but uh, he became regarded as the god of healing, okay? 
he was like a demigod because his dad was a god and his mom was not. And so, uh, but then a lot of situations happened where he became a full-blown god, okay? Um, he is a full-blown god, and he becomes the god of healing. And he's always depicted with this little snake, which you shouldn't recognize. Okay, do you see that? Do you already know about that? Okay. Um, this is where this symbol comes from. He is the god of healing, and he had a temple um, in Corinth. Okay. Uh, so a little bit about what happened with... Uh, uh, when someone would go to this healing temple, let's say you lived in ancient Corinth and uh, you were an idol worshiper, uh, certainly you would have visited the temple here. And what would you have been seeking? Well, healing for something. Whatever ails you, um, go to the healer. And so there's the city center. Um, I know you probably can't make that out very well, but there's a lot happening right there. That's the city center, which is actually, uh, that map is based on the ar archaeological site. Okay? But then also, uh, back this way, actually up, um, is uh, where uh, this temple was that we're talking about, this healing temple. And so it was very near the city center. Now, just as it is with Sparta, okay, the big city that it is, we have our city center, right? And then you have kind of the outskirts, right? This is just the city center, okay? Uh, Corinth was very large, um, but this is just the city center, okay? This is where all the happenings were, right? Um, all the pink areas are temples, Okay, and we're just focusing on that one way back there. Okay, if you wanted healing, you would go back to this particular temple and uh, you would go through all these different rituals and things like that. But one of the things that you would do is you would tell the priest there what was your problem and he would then say, okay, here's what you need to do. Lay on this little concrete bed and uh, he's going to give you some drugs and these drugs will then cause you to go to sleep and you're going to hallucinate and you're going to have some dreams. And as you have dreams, these hallucinations, um, uh, the God himself will actually meet up with you and he will either cure you or tell you how to be cured. You will wake up and then you will offer a sacrifice to that God. And then you would um, go here. Uh, so this is actually an up, up close view of that temple in Corinth. And you can see the actual temple itself is small, it's inside. And then you have the altar over there where sacrifices would be made. And then you have this courtyard area. And uh, those, those were the dining rooms. Why are there dining rooms in the temple? Because part of this whole thing is that you would make your sacrifice to the God, but then you would have a communal meal with that God there. So you would be in the temple eating meat sacrificed to the idol. That makes sense? All right. Um, one more very interesting thing would be this next picture. Uh, these were all found at Corinth at this temple. And what all these are, um, are uh, all the body parts that were healed there. So you would have your uh, hand or your arm was healed, so they say. And you say, oh, wow, thank you. And you'd make a little cast of it. And then you'd go and you'd present it as an offering to the God saying, thank you for healing my hand. Here's a sculpture of a hand, okay? Not too different, actually, than some Roman Catholic practices that are very modern, is that when they uh, pray to a particular um, saint or something, actually, if they find healing, they will make a little cast of something and they will then send it. It's actually, they do a very similar thing today in Roman, Roman Catholic Church. Um, either way. Okay, so you get the idea. Um, I'm going to read a quote here um, from an article that you're probably glad to not have read the whole thing, but I, I found 
a little section here that's, that's relevant, and I just want you to hear it, okay? Now, this guy's an archaeologist, so just bear in mind, he's not, you know, a writer or preaching. He's an archaeologist, okay? But he said, this is very helpful, listen. Ritual, he, he's talking about uh, this particular temple in Corinth. Listen, ritual meals uh, related to the cult of Asclepius were a feature of the sanctuary of Asclepius. These ritual meals took place in a banquet facility uh, compromising that area that I have in purple, okay? The celebrations included a communal meal with the God, with the sacrifice of the animal, and this was considered fundamental to ensure the health of the visitor, and it was necessary for a successful cure. And a portion of the sacrificial food was offered to the God, while the rest was consumed by the worshipers. You have that picture in your mind? Now, this was very common. Another thing about this particular, and the reason I actually picked this as our example, and we're moving on from this now, but the reason I picked this as our example is because when the Romans took over Corinth, which was a Greek city, and it now was becoming Roman, that the temple, uh, the sanctuary of Asclepius was there, but it was kind of destroyed when all this war was happening, and then Rome conquered it. But when it became a Roman city, the very first temple that was reconstructed was this one the very first temple that was reconstructed. They're going to put their many, money, effort, and energy into this one because it was so important. Okay? So when you transport yourself back to ancient Corinth, this is at least one of the things that you would see and that you would experience. It was part of the life of ancient pagan Corinth. Now, uh, we're going to look at our text uh, with a little bit of that historical backing in mind. And we're going to walk through why Paul would have written this and the significance it has for us here in 2024 in Sparta, Tennessee. Okay? Break it down just a little bit into a couple, uh, couple of ideas. Number one, verses one through three. Here's the principle he lays out, the principle of knowledge and love. So let's look at it. Every time you see a seven, change that to an eight in your mind. Okay? <laughs> Sorry, my, my own personal typo there. Sorry about that. All right, that's chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Okay. So we'll stop right there. If you have an ESV, it most likely has a couple of these things in quotation marks. Do you see that in your Bible? Uh, it says, all of, us possess, all of us possess knowledge that may be in quotation marks in your Bible. And again, the next sentence, the word knowledge may be in quotation marks in your Bible. And the reason is because it seems as though Paul is actually quoting from the letter. You remember the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter. And it seems as though he's quoting what they wrote to him and he's repeating it back to them. Okay, so he says, now concerning food offered to idols, which you wrote to me about and you need to know about, you're asking me about, you wrote, all of us possess knowledge. But Paul says, let me interrupt that thought for a second and tell you something. This knowledge you're saying that everyone has, what it does, its effect is that it puffs people up. But love, on the other hand, builds up. If anyone imagine that he knows something, that has knowledge, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Okay, so there were two groups 
in Corinth, in the church, and we need to let that be in our minds because as we read through this text, two groups are given to us. The first group um, is, go to that next one there, Rob, if you would. The first group is those who have knowledge about food offered to idols. That's one group. And then you have another group, those who do not have knowledge about food offered to idols. There are those who have the knowledge, and there are those who do not have the knowledge. Um, as you will read in verse 7, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge, right? So there are some who do have the knowledge. There are some who do not have the knowledge. And the reason they're getting this wrong is because they wrote what? Now all of us possess knowledge. But Paul's about to say, well, you think everybody has the same knowledge you do, but they don't. So you're wrong. So he has to correct their understanding. But before he gets into the specifics of, of this food offered to idols, he lays down a principle for them. And this principle is timeless. This principle is not just for ancient Corinth. This principle is for us. And listen to what he says. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Was that only true for them or is that still true today? That's still true today. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Was that just true for them or is that also true today? And that's also true today. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Again, also true today. So what's being said here? Here's the principle, if I could say it in my own words, here's the principle of knowledge and love that Paul's laying down for them. It's that knowledge of God's truth is good. No one's questioning that. Love for God's people is good. But a true knowledge of God's truth causes a person to love God's people more, not less. That's the principle. Knowledge should cause you to love more, not less. And what was it doing for the Corinthians, evidently? It was, it, I, I, rather than puffed up, I prefer self-inflated. I think that's better because that's what it is. You, you, you're you're self-inflated, puffed up, proud, right? Um, so if someone has knowledge, it causes them to be self-inflated. And this self-inflation then does what as they relate to others? causes them to love them less. Causes them to be proud and arrogant and mean, hurtful, judgmental. Is this making sense? But Paul wants them to know that as you grow in knowledge, if you knew as you should truly know, you would be growing in love. But you're not. And so Paul needs to correct them and say, and in this, you are just so missing the point. Those who are puffed up, self-inflated, imagine themselves to be superior to other believers because of their knowledge. They're more concerned with their theological exactness than building up others in love. I'm going to say that again because I, I think this hits at the heart of a lot of issues. They're more concerned with their theological exactness than building up others in love. Does that hit home for anybody in the room? You've either experienced this. Well, you've experienced this one way or another, right? You've been on either the, the sending or receiving side of this, 
okay? If you're in the sending side of it, you might not be there yet because your knowledge is saying, I already know everything you're about to say, so I'm not really listening. The self-inflated nature of pride and knowledge causes you to love less, causes you to be a person that you should not be as you relate to others. While our love for people should be informed by proper theology, would you say that that's correct? Our love for people should be informed by proper theology. Yes? Okay. We don't just love and then we get to define what love means, right? Okay. Uh, God defines what loves me, but when we love, we should be informed by proper theology. The ideas of love and theology, that is love for theology and love for people, you know those aren't opposed to each other. You can be a lover of theology and a lover of people. I don't know that a lot of people connect the dots here, but it seems to be, it seems to be, based on my experience. Those who love theology love people less. Those who love people a lot love theology less. This seems to be the case, that extremes are created, okay? But the ideas are not opposed to each other. We are to be lovers of theology and lovers of people, okay? Is that a hard balance? Yes, and that's why you fall to one side or the other. It's too hard to make this work. It's too hard to walk the line of loving theology and loving people. So I'm just going to decide to love theology and be mean, critical, looking down on people all the time because it takes too much effort to love them. I know too much, right? I'm too enlightened to love you. But over here, you have a situation where you have people who just only want to love and they don't care what's right and wrong. They just, they overlook everything and all they're concerned about is relationships with people. Nothing else matters. That is also an unbalanced approach because you're saying it's too hard to get theologically accurate because I'm concerned with loving people. You, you get the contrast here? Now, the, the Lord calls us to be in the middle here and that's what Paul is calling the people in Corinth to do. They had a theological accuracy about something, but it caused them to not be loving. Paul says you can be theologically accurate and still love people. That's who we should be. Both theologically accurate and loving of people. The two worlds can exist. Okay? They can exist. I want to read for you. This is 1 John 3, 10 through 11. I have it uh, uh, as a note there. that it's a, it's a reference that we should be concerned with right here. Let me read it for you. 1 John 3, 10 and 11, it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness, that's number one, is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So, John is also giving a picture of someone that practices righteousness. And in order to practice righteousness, what must you know? What is righteous? In order to know what is righteous, what must you have? Proper theology. So he's saying it's good to have proper theology, accurate theology, and yet love people. Do you find, personally, that your quest for theological exactness and personal righteousness has caused you to miss the mark on loving people? 
Or could it be, possibly, that your lack of concern for theological accuracy and an overwhelming love for people have caused you to miss the mark on pursuing righteousness and accuracy in your theology? Both would be an error. But if you're the other, you have lots of information about the Bible and theology, but you're seriously lacking in a heartfelt desire to see others built up. That's a hard situation to be in. You have lots of theological knowledge about the Bible, but you don't really care if people are built up in love. I don't really care about relationships, though. I care about what I know. Paul is saying, if you think you know something and it's causing you to not be loving and build people up, you don't know as you ought to know. Right? You do not yet know as you ought to know if you think that your knowledge leads you toward not being loving to another person, specifically another believer. (coughs) Paul also writes here, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That's an interesting little phrase there to throw in on the end, and we wonder what it has to do with the previous statement or thought. But it's all still about this principle of knowledge and love. Paul reminds them here of the connection between knowledge and love in terms of their own salvation. There is a connection between knowledge and love in terms of your own salvation, and I I believe Paul is putting this here as a reminder to them. Don't you know who you are? You're missing this connection between knowledge and love. Let's just evaluate you for a moment and your relationship with the Lord. If anyone loves God, it is because he is known by God. If anyone loves, and, and, and this right here is, is one of the reasons why sometimes it's really helpful to, to, to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the original languages and things like that here because the Greek has a tense that, that we don't have. It's called the perfect tense. And uh, what that means is there's, there's an action that happened in the past, but you're living in the effects of it today, okay? So when you say he is known by God, okay, that you're just known by God. But for them, what it meant is you were known by God in the past, and you were living in the effects of being known by God in the present. That's what it means. That contrasts with if anyone loves God in the present. If you love God in the present, it's because you were known by God in the past and you're living in the effects of that today. In other words, if you love God, was it your own personal effort and knowledge that got you loved by God? No. So you're saying that the love of God actually was a greater effect on your salvation than your own personal knowledge of him? So there's the connection between knowledge and love. You think knowledge is primary, where God is saying, oh really, if that were the case, then you would never love me. Does that make sense? So that's the connection right there. I would say that this way. Here's just a little summary, okay? That you did not come to love God because of your great knowledge. Instead, you came to love God because... He first loved you and chose you. This should cause you to be humble and patient and kind and sympathetic. Now, if it causes you to not be any of those things, it's because you misunderstand the connection between knowledge and love. 
right? Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Let me just read it real quick. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. It says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, there's just another reminder right there of who you actually are, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Bearing with, one another, bearing with one another, and if someone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now, why is all of this necessary to be said? It's because we are a group of people who are different, but we all must understand that in Christ we are one body. And in that one body, we should be getting along somehow. And it's not going to work if there are the knowledgeable elites judging those who don't have the knowledge you have. It's not going to work. There will not be unity in the church if that's our attitude. Now, the other side of this exists as well, but Paul is particularly calling out this group that thinks they possess knowledge. And he says, oh yeah, well, if you had true knowledge, you would be more loving, and you're not loving, and so we have a problem here. You think they're the problem, when in reality, you're the problem. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul will say, this is verses 23 and 24, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You hear that? Now he'll reiterate that in just a couple of chapters, but it comes off of what is just being said here, right? Paul wants them to be loving. And by the way, this same conversation goes on when he starts talking about the spiritual gifts. Are you eager for a manifestation of the Spirit among you? Then strive to excel in building up the church. And how do we build each other up? Well, he says, well, I will show you a more excellent way. Love. Love is patient. and Love is kind. Right? Love. Good theology and good love for people, not opposed to each other. Okay? That's the principle of knowledge and love. Now he takes that, because you notice he hasn't said anything about food offered to idols yet. He's just given us a basic principle. Right, that's all he's done so far, so let's move on to verse 4. Now the principle is considered here and applied in verses 4 through 13. Again, that's chapter 8, verses 4 through 13. So the principles laid out, Paul moves toward application to their specific situation. So how do you take the principle of knowledge and love and slap it on food offered to idols? That's the question. Let's look at it. Verses four through six first. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there, are many, there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods, many lords, those are probably in quotation marks, right? 
because they're not real, okay? Yet, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There is one God, and we're certain of that. This whole section here, verses 4 through 6, is, is really laying out the reality that their knowledge of idols was accurate. He's saying, now let me tell you where you're right. You're not altogether right, but let me tell you at least here where you got something right. And he says, well, uh, and he, there's quotations, hopefully in your text, and it says, an idol has no real existence. Most likely they said that, and he's saying, now you're right about that. You're right. An idol has no real existence. So obviously he's not talking about the thing itself, right? An idol, that's a good idol size, right? At least a personal household idol, right? That's a good idol size. The others were massive, right? Massive. But it's not like this thing doesn't exist. That exists. But he's saying that there is no basis for its reality as far as it being a god. An idol has no real existence, and that's true. That's true. There is no God but one, and that's true. There are many so-called gods. There are many gods and lords. But for us, there's just one God. Idols are empty, right? It made me consider, it made me think about, this is back in Acts 17. And do you remember this from Acts 17? Where did Paul go in Acts 17? To Athens. Well, at least in the section where where I'm going to read here, okay? He's in Athens. Now, Athens was near what city? (coughs) Corinth. Was right next door to Corinth, right? So when Paul was in Athens, and he's in this part of the world in Greece, um, he is standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and he looks around and he says, this place is full of idols. And he takes this as an opportunity to preach to them, right? And he says, men of Athens, I, per- I perceive that in every way you are very religious, For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. Now that had real meaning for them, that had real impact for them. There were temples everywhere. You saw the little bit in Corinth. Athens was much bigger, many more temples. This was part of the lifeblood of the city. Temples. And he's saying, but don't you know that the true God, the real God, who you call the unknown God, he doesn't live in temples made by hands, made by the hands of men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs something since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted places, periods, boundaries for their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art of the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, a man by whom he has appointed, and of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. These idols have no real existence, but many of them thought they did. 
And that comes into play here. So he's saying there is a group here who has real knowledge and the knowledge that they have is this. Idols have no real existence. They knew that there is one God and one God only and they had that settled in their hearts and in their minds. So of that, they are correct. It's just that when we move to verses seven through nine, we realize the problem in their thinking. So let's look at that. The second idea here is that their knowledge of the situation was incomplete. Although they did have knowledge of idols, and that was accurate, their full knowledge of the situation at hand was incomplete. He says in verse seven, however, not all possess this knowledge. Oh, do you hear it? You know that idols have no real existence. You know there is no God but one. You know this. You know, but not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we eat. We are no better off if we do. But take care, take care, take care. This has a lot to do with loving. That this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And that's where they got it wrong. Now they were right in that idols have no real existence and they are no better off if they eat. They are no worse off if they don't eat, right? They, that's right, but what they didn't consider is how it would affect other people. And they thought, as long as I have a theological exactness about this and I can argue my case, then I can do whatever I want. But he says, be careful that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You have not thought about the weak brothers and sisters among you, and this is your critical error. This is where you're wrong. So there were two groups, and we're going to further define these two groups. Uh, the two historical groups in the Corinthian church, right, were those who have knowledge and those who don't have knowledge. We get those two groups now. But furthermore, into this group, there were two timeless groups in the universal church. They were there and they're here, okay? It's important that we understand this. There are the strong in faith with a strong conscience, and there are those who are weak in faith with a weak conscience. Do you notice that it says that the weaker brother, the one with a weak conscience through former association with idols, he just needs to quit being a baby and grow up and understand theology? It's not what it says. It says you, the stronger one, you, are the problem. You're not loving the weak one. You're the problem. Your quest for theological exactness and precision has blinded you to the fact that you must be loving to the weak. Because in your mind, everyone ought to be just as strong as you are. And you're wrong about that. We are all at different places. There are the strong among us. There are the weak among us. And Paul is not condemning the weak ones among them. He's saying they exist. And you need to realize that they exist. And you who are weak need to do something about how you interact. You who are strong need to do something about how you interact with the weak. Right? 
So they didn't have a proper understanding of the Christian conscience because that's what this whole conversation is about. You'll notice it says, some through former association with idols, this is verse seven, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Their conscience. Do you see that in your Bible? Their conscience. What is the Christian conscience? And why is the conscience a conversation that we should be having? Or do all Christians have the same conscience? And should we not in any way accommodate those who are weak with a weaker conscience or a stronger conscience, but instead we all ought to be the same? How do we deal with that? How do we think about that? That's a good question. Uh, Before we, I'm just going to summarize some points about it, but I have a quote here for you first. Some of you know this quote well, some of you don't. Some of you maybe have never heard it. Martin Luther, 1521, he said, so what you should know is that Martin Luther was kicking against the grain of Roman Catholic doctrine, and he had published some books, well, or his friends had them published, okay, but Martin Luther was prolifically uh, writing and speaking out against the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church then calls him in to condemn him, and they said, recant of your writings and just submit to Roman Catholic doctrine, and this is uh, kind of solidifying his fate here, okay? And there's this room full of people, more people than we have here, and everyone's looking, and he said, will you recant? And his answer is, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they've contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God, and I cannot and will not recant anything. Why? For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Is that true? Is that true? Let's talk about the Christian conscience just for a moment. I have some summary points. Five of them, which is working as a bridge to the last portion of our text here. And uh, so some of them we've already seen, some of them are going to be laid out for us, okay, but I want to go ahead and summarize thoughts about the Christian conscience here, and that is number one. The conscience must be informed by the Word of God. I think that we can look back at last week, right, and we were talking about decisions and how we make decisions and the will of God. You remember this from the text? that you would have a well-ordered life, a well-ordered life and that your life would secure devotion to the Lord. Do you remember this? Okay, so part of that well-ordered life is what? Is that you are doing things and making decisions according to the word of God. Okay? What things are we talking about when we're talking about the Christian conscience? We're not talking about, for example, uh, is Jesus Christ divine? Well, I don't know. My conscience doesn't let me have that. Well, if you have a weak conscience, no big deal. I just, you can think he's not, I can think he is, and well, you have a weak conscience, and I just need to bear with that. Okay, that's not what we're talking about, okay? We're not talking about these things that are cut and dry, black and white, but then that gets into a conversation where some people think one thing is cut and dry, black and white, and another person thinks it's not cut and dry, black and white, and then we have an issue, right? Such as like believer's baptism, Okay? So you're wondering why are there so many denominations, things like this? It comes down to stuff like this, and people gather in groups where they are like-minded. That's how it happens. 
at least at its best, okay? Uh, there's a phrase here that has been used throughout Christian history that you should be familiar with, and, and I don't know, I was thinking about it, I don't know that I've ever brought this phrase up, but it may be one again that you've heard. And it goes something like this, it has a couple of different versions, okay, but it goes something like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Let's say that again. In essentials, unity. Yes? In non-essentials, liberty. And that's what makes you shiver. But in all things, charity. And that really depends on your heart disposition right there. Are you a charitable person? Especially when it comes to these issues of non-essentials and you say, no, I'm making everything an essential. And if you make everything an essential, do you know what you are? A legalist. That's what legalism is. Everything is absolutely essential. But that's not true. That's not true. Everything is not essential. I'm sorry. We should know, though, that in the essentials, we must be unified. So we're not talking about conscience when it comes to essentials, okay? All right? We're talking about these non-essential things. But in the non-essentials, where we have differing opinions and differing consciences, we must be charitable, loving. Okay? So the second idea then is that believers do not all have identical conscience development. Right? Where you're at with your conscience is not the same place that someone else is with their conscience. It's like, I, my conscience won't let me do that. Well, my conscience will, so let's go do it. That's exactly what was happening in Corinth. And Paul said, when you say your conscience will let you do it, and you bring along, or, or another believer sees you doing something, we'll get into that, then you're actually sinning against your brother and the Lord because although you have a strong conscience, they don't, and you're causing this to be a sinful situation because of the way you handled it. So just because your conscience is here and another person's conscience is here, it doesn't mean that you can't have conversation about those things. And we can bring to light scripture that might help guide our conscience. But we must recognize that we are in different places with our conscience development. Are you at a different place with your conscience development than you were 10 years ago, for example? Number three, it is a sin for a believer to go against their own conscience. This may be one that you've not considered, but it's pretty clear in Scripture in several different places. Do you know that if your conscience does not permit you to do a thing and you do it anyway, that to you it is sin? So, Jimmy can do a thing, and I can do that thing, same thing. And for him, it is sinful, and for me, it is not, or vice versa. And you might say, how can that be? Stuff is either sinful or not sinful, right? Wrong. Not when we're considering the conscience. Because as Paul said here, some offer, some eat this meat as really offered to an idol. Because they don't have the knowledge that you have and their conscience is weak. And so when they eat, and like I said, that's going to become more clear here in the next little bit of our text, but we need to understand that if you go against your conscience, um, 
it is sin against God, but you also ought to be developing your conscience, okay? But number four, believers should be careful to consider the conscience of other believers. That's getting toward this love idea. Just because you're convinced of something in your conscience does not mean that others must agree with you, and some of us can't handle that. But we do not have to agree on everything, and if that's what we're waiting for, you'll never belong to a church in any unified way. You will always be seeking out that congregation that is, looks, thinks about everything just like you do, and you're never going to find it. You're never going to find it because it doesn't exist. And then finally, five, strong believers are obligated, obligated to bear with the failings of the weak. Let me just prove that to you briefly, and then we'll move on to our last section of text. If you would turn with me just for a moment to Romans 14, and I'd like to read a few passages there because it's a parallel passage to the Romans regarding this stuff. So he's writing to the Corinthians here concerning this stuff, and then he also writes to the Romans concerning these things. And so we're just going to look just for a moment at a parallel idea from Paul concerning these things because he goes into a little bit more detail here. He hits it from another angle. And I'm just going to read it. Probably. I'll probably only make a few comments, probably. But let's just look at what it says. Romans 14, verse 13. It says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. I'm going to read that again. Nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Do you, do you hear that? If you eat this food offered to an idol and you think it's not clean, then it's, then it's not clean. If you think it is clean, then it's clean. But if you think it's unclean and you eat it, then to you it is unclean. And it has become sin. Right? For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, right? So why are you getting so wrapped up in this stuff anyway? But of righteousness and peace and joy, that's what you should be getting wrapped up in, in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is wrong. It is wrong to make another stumble by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. But the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. A lot of us have trouble with that. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Say, no, I'm going to let everybody know and I'm going to force them to think just like me. That's not what the text says. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on, what him, on himself or what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I'm going to pause right there. It is sin if you go against your conscience. That's what's being said. 
Whoever has doubts, you don't know if it's clean or unclean. You don't know if this is okay or not okay. You don't know if this is sinful or not sinful, but you go ahead and do it anyway. You're not doing that thing out of faith. And anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. It's not just okay. It's sin. And then it says, we who are strong, there's these categories. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. All right, he, can, he continues on there for a while. Okay, you get the idea though? The Christian conscience is a real thing and it's something that we should consider and this is a big part of the argument that Paul's making here about this food sacrifice to idols. Okay, let's look at the last couple of verses, verses 10 through 13. So here's what they were basically doing wrong. They failed to apply the principle to their situation. That's, that's the issue, right? Their knowledge of idols was accurate, true. Their knowledge of the situation was incomplete, and so Paul brought them up to speed on, on trying to acknowledge their whole situation. And so their, their issue then is that they didn't take the principle that, by the way, they said they have knowledge. Well, obviously they didn't have knowledge of this, right? They didn't have knowledge of this, of this principle of knowledge and love because it was working itself out. So they didn't properly apply the principle to their situation. And so Paul helps them with that. Verses 10 through 13. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, imagine that situation, okay? Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Pause right there. I just want to make sure we all understand what's being said there. You are in this strong category, let's say. You are a strong believer. You have strong knowledge, strong conscience. And you know that idols have no real existence. So when there's food offered to an idol, you know the food was offered to a nothing. So it's just food. Food does not commend us to God. It doesn't also condemn us before God. So I'm going to go ahead and eat it. What's the big deal? And by the way, I can be in this banquet room, in this sanctuary and temple, because this, it's just a building anyway. What does it matter? It doesn't matter. And Paul was saying, well, you are, you're right, but you're missing something. You're forgetting a, a huge aspect here. And he says, imagine this scenario. You're in the sanctuary eating the food, and... A, a, someone who's weak, um, who doesn't have this knowledge that you have, sees you eating. And Paul says, will he not, this weak one, be encouraged to do what you're doing? Now, he has former association with idols. He used to offer food to idols as if they were real gods. And he would have communal meals with those gods. And he has not yet come to a place to where he has a full grasp understanding of all of how idols work in this whole situation. And so Paul's saying, is that how you want to handle this situation? Are you okay with wounding your brother's conscience just because you have the right to eat whatever you want? Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. 
not only did you sin against that person and cause them to sin, but yes, that sin was also sin against Christ himself because you were not loving his body, loving the other believers. You add a, a sense of theological precision and accuracy, but you were so focused on that and your own personal rights that it caused you to do things that harmed the body. And in that, you are wrong. Therefore, Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. What did he just do? He gives up his own right. He has right, and he gives it up. Why? Out of love. Out of love to not cause someone else to stumble. The applications here are vast, and so I focus on on the things that are going to uh, lead us down a path of better understanding the principle, because this is how the Christian life operates understanding biblical principles and then taking those principles and applying them throughout our lives. So to better understand the principle informs all of our situations that we go through in life. Are you well acquainted with the principle of knowledge and love? And does it inform your behaviors? Does it inform what you do? Are you concerned with other people and where they're at with their conscience? Is this at all something that registers with you? Because it should inform what you do and you should consider what people see you do. We'll end our time in Romans 14, verses 1 through 6. Which will cause us to look at one more passage. I'm just saying that's just, we're at Romans 14, 1 through 6, and then we'll have one final one, and then that's the end, okay? Romans 14, verses 1 through 6 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but don't quarrel over opinions. Does that make a little bit more sense? Stop quarreling over opinions. Some will say, well, we don't have any opinions. Everyone must think exactly the same. No, that's not right. That's incorrect we are going to have differences of opinion. But don't quarrel over them. And what kind of opinions? Well, one person believes he may eat anything, while another, a weak person, eats only vegetables. Ah. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Ah, both sides were just addressed, weren't they? Both sides are addressed here. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands and falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Here's another example. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This is something that is, is, is very important. Maybe I'll talk about this uh, on the addendum tomorrow, but this is very important. It, this is not a pass for you to remain weak. This is not a pass for you to remain ignorant of biblical doctrine, okay? Because each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, and so that's our goal, that in everything that we do, I'm fully convinced whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. I'm fully convinced. 
And if we are not fully convinced, you better wait before you act on that thing. Because whatever, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is, is sin. How do, we, how do we find this out? These, all these different things that happen to us in life. What is right? What is wrong? Well, we talked about decision-making last week, but again, uh, Scripture also tells us that there is an abundance, or there's wisdom in an abundance of counselors, and that we ought to be seeking out the counsel of other believers, certainly the counsel of the elders of your church, but you need to know that it is before God that each individual one stands and falls. Okay? At the end of the day, just because you were guided to do a thing, you say, well, somebody else told me to do it, so it's okay. It was wrong. You must make your own decisions. But each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Okay? One observes the day, he does it in honor of the Lord. One eats meat and eats, eats meat in the honor of the Lord. He gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. He gives thanks to God. Do you see the situation? Just in everything that you're doing, you need to be fully convinced in your own mind that this is pleasing to the Lord and act from that. Act from that. And as we act from that, we need to be comfortable with the fact that sometimes this is going to cause differences among us. And that we shouldn't be quarreling over opinions over that stuff. Final, final passage, Hebrews 4 and it's just a couple, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, and this is just a, reflect, a, uh, a reflection on the character of God here as we close, okay? While it is true that idols have no real existence, and therefore the food sacrificed to them does not defile believers, it is also true that the right to eat food should be considered through the lens of love, for those who are weak. Said another way, just because you're theologically justified in doing something doesn't mean it's right or okay or appropriate to do that thing. Your advancement in the knowledge and the truth of God should cause you to be loving and sympathetic toward the weak, not judgmental over them. Sympathetic, you say. Sympathetic. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our, our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. And so let us with confidence then draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If Jesus can be sympathetic towards weaknesses. We should too. Let's pray.